Happy collecting! What's going on, everyone? Mike go back with another episode of Hobby Talk. Appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to the show. Today, thrilled to be joined by the baseball card junkies. We've got Nate Blackford returning to the show. He is Tops 85401. And also, Eric Leet joins us, Titanic Taters over there on YouTube. Guys, how you doing today? Hey, doing great. Doing pretty good, Mike. All right, I appreciate you guys joining the show. Obviously, you guys run Baseball Card Junkies TV over on YouTube. Very popular channel. Something that I think a lot of a lot of people in the YouTube community really enjoy, but I think even more so than that, I think it's a great gateway for new collectors, for people who used to collect who are being reintroduced to the hobby. I know that's one of your goals, but I think your channel reaches a large audience in part because of the type of content you put out and people jump on YouTube who, you know, haven't ever watched a baseball card video and your stuff is one of the things that jumps on. So I think you do a great service to the hobby and obviously you guys are also on Facebook and some of the other social media stuff you're into. So I want to start out by talking a little bit about Baseball Card Junkies TV for a few moments. And then of course, we'll be talking about this great hobby of collecting baseball cards. So Nate, would you like to uh, just reintroduce Baseball Card Junkies a little bit to us, to anyone out there listening to the show for the first time? Well, yeah, I mean, the channel is just uh, something that Eric and I came up with, and uh, we just wanted to just, uh, you know, give a channel where people could learn about the hobby because there's so, you know, it's a vast hobby. There's so much to learn, and, you know, who do you ask, right? I mean, we, you know, Eric and I, we had to learn on our own, and then, of course, uh, YouTube came along, and we kept learning about the hobby, and so that was kind of our goal. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely, uh, I mean, I'd agree with that statement. Um, I mean, Nate and I met on YouTube, first off, um, so that was, that's kind of an interesting kind of backstory with us, um, but we both had our own individual channels, and Nate really got me pushing towards making my own videos, and then he had his other channel, um, what was it? The N Blackford fourteen twelve, right? Yeah, Nate? yeah, that um, was the original channel. Yeah, yeah, and it was just kind of sitting there, not doing anything. And uh, like one day, I came up to him and I was like, "Hey, we should start a channel together." And he was like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> and so we kind of started like kicking around names, and um, we came up with a whole bunch of stuff. And um, basically, I went up to my wife and said, "Hey." Um, what's the most catchy? And she was like, this one, and came up with bank. It was baseball card junkies TV, and um, it's kind of just kicked, like, kind of, I guess, snowballed from there as far as um, growing the channel and coming up with content. And you know, there's, there's, we know so much about baseball cards, we forget what we know at this point, and kind of run out of ideas. And then all of a sudden, one of us comes up to the other person and is like, hey, how about this? And we're like, oh, great. 
Yeah, a lot of times our audience also gives us ideas for videos. Uh, they'll write comments and stuff. Well, why don't you try this? Or this would be cool if you did that. So that's always nice too. Yeah, once you get rolling on something, that's where it can kind of take off. And I guess this that's how you can kind of define the success of the channel is you kind of just start doing it. You put together some content, some interesting content, some valuable content. And next thing you know... One person finds it and that leads to someone else finding it and then those two people tell someone and then it gets enough viewership that it starts moving up in some of the search engines and next thing you know, you have a nice little following and that's that's always nice. If you're going to put out content, you might as well have someone watch it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because at first like we were like, is anybody even going to watch this? I mean, it was kind of just like us like – making videos just to ent entertain ourselves really because uh, <laughs> <laughs> like we were hanging out talking about baseball cards and we we're like all right well let's just like record ourselves talking about baseball cards <laughs> yeah. people um it, it i mean it became popular and you know here we are now and it's only been around for what like a year and a couple of months right i mean it hasn't been two um, years yet has it i don't think it's been two years i'd have to go back and check because our first video is that one where we went to the local card shop I yeah one or maybe that was after our introduction video i can't remember but yeah it's probably been maybe two years at the most at the most yeah and it's a lot of fun that people across the country i mean you guys are out in california you guys both root for california baseball teams the giants the a's but you have people in the Midwest, you have people on the East Coast, people down South, people up North, everyone kind of coming together to uh, enjoy this channel to get some content. And that's one of the that's one of the great things about you know today's technology. Uh, people can listen really from all around the world, gather information. So you know you kind of brought up earlier like who's going to teach someone about the hobby. You kind of grow up. A lot of us grew up either on our own, figuring it out, maybe with a parent, but not everyone has that luxury of having someone to share the hobby with, at least initially, but your channel among other channels and other aspects of social media really helps, I think. It, it helps people feel better about collecting because they, if they're not sure about something, they can reach out, they can listen to your content, they can watch your content, and then, of course, you guys are good with kind of going back and forth with the comments and all that stuff. So if people have questions, they can ask and you can give your thoughts on it and that can help them make decisions and maybe build up confidence and build up knowledge and kind of pushing them forward towards collecting. Um, and and that, that's the thing that I think is, I think obviously going to get harder as time goes on. I mean, what we try to answer every comment or question that is posted on YouTube on our channel um, obviously when we're doing live videos and you probably experienced it, this mic as well, um, it's kind of hard to keep up with all the questions and comments that are popping up. Um, so we really try to go back and when we post a video and people post questions or comments, we really try to reply to every single one. So we really try to keep that, uh, running, I guess, commentary even after the video. So everybody feels like they are they're getting their questions answered and, and they could be part of the community and that, and, and that's huge for us is really building that community where everybody can feel like, um, 
there's help out there for things. And um, I think part of another reason for the channel was um, Nate and I really kind of had value for those penny cards or five cent or 25 cent cards as well. And um, with this hobby, how it is now is, you know, the autographs and all the, you know, big low numbered inserts, the one of ones are kind of, or the high graded vintage are really taking over the hobby right now. And that's what people um, put the most value on. And uh, there's a lot of people out there that, that can't afford that kind of stuff. So um, we wanted to show everybody that you can still have fun in the hobby um, by collecting cards that, you know, aren't, aren't $100, $500, $10,000 cards. Um, there are cards that you can go find in your dollar bin or your 25 cent bin. So that was really important to us also. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like some of the favorite parts of my collection are, you know, building binders just full of, you know, themes or, you know, just put, put a page of nine cards together and just the way they look together, you know, that's just part of the thing that makes me happy when I'm looking through my collection for sure. So, yeah, I, I and, and, and I notice that a lot of collectors are starting to, you know, I'm seeing more videos where people are more confident when they're showing, you know, cards that don't have a, a real high value, but they enjoy the cards for what they are. And I always enjoy those kinds of videos. Yeah, I think that's important. And that's kind of some of the advice I try and give people if they ask uh, when they're talking about starting a YouTube channel. I try and tell them, like, listen, you got to collect what you like to collect. You shouldn't collect what other people tell you to collect. That doesn't mean you can't seek advice. That doesn't mean um, you can't take suggestions from people. But everyone's on a different budget. Hey, some people can go out there and buy Mickey Mantles, uh, high-grade Mickey Mantles. Some people can buy all slab cards. Some people have to make use of the quarter and 50-cent boxes. And there's no there's no wrong way to collect. Uh, you you got to collect the players you like, the teams you like, the sport you like. That That's to me – and you can see through. Some people try and just – they try and just do what people want. Like you can't just force yourself to collect baseball cards because a lot of people want to see baseball cards. If you're a hockey fan at heart, collect hockey. If you're a football fan, do the football, do whatever you like, whatever you enjoy. And I do think when people um, like you guys just go out there and just say, Hey, this is what we collect. This is what we enjoy. I don't care if other people, some other people don't like Barry bonds for this reason Hey, some people might stick their nose up at Jose Canseco for this reason. I'm going to collect it anyway. I feel as if I do the same thing. I'll show off Phillies cards and I'm like, hey, if you don't like these guys, so be it. But that's what I collect. doesn't mean I don't collect other things as well, but you have to be kind of confident in your collection. And if you're going to make videos, you want to show off what you collect. Don't buy something just to show it off and say, hey, look, I got this card that's just not the way to do it. I think it's more enjoyable when you're kind of collecting what you like and you're confident enough and you feel good enough to just show it off and say, Hey guys, this is what I picked up for my collection. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I like uh, making YouTube videos actually is because if you have friends or family that aren't interested in the hobby, <laughs> 
you're not going to invite them into your man cave and you know you know show off what you have so you got to show it off to an audience that's going to enjoy it and that's that's what makes it so much fun for me you know and uh and so i always try to you know do that and then i noticed you know <clears throat> over the years it, it seemed like people kept asking me things about like well you know tell me more about you know the the card from 1988 or the card from 2007 or whatever and and so that's why I like to always, you know, talk about the cards and try to share a little bit of knowledge about cards when I'm doing a video because you never know who's going to learn something when they're watching your videos. There's always so yeah. much to learn. And I love it too when people, you know, like the the best content for me is a content where pe people are entertaining and it, it's not even the cards, it's it's the person talking about the cards is what what I enjoy. I can agree with that. I will second that motion. <laughs> yeah, and when you see that real passion for the cards and that passion for the players and teams, uh, you know, I think that's that definitely adds to it. If you're just going through the motions, just kind of showing off, hey, I picked these up just to kind of – for the sake of picking them up, just to acquire them. Um, mm -hmm. That to me is not quite as engaging as someone who's, you know – purchasing something for a specific reason beyond just the piece of cardboard that they're spending money on yeah <laughs> yeah one of the one of the favorite cards of my collection is the uh 1978 uh willie mccovey record breaker card because it's like my first favorite card that i had as a little kid because at the top of the card it has like a bunch of stars on it and it shows like this this image of Willie McCovey and at the bottom it says McCovey hits two home runs in one inning for the second time in his career. That's just, just one of my favorite cards in, in my whole collection, you know, just and, and the nostalgia, right? I guess I'm being nostalgic about that card, but just one of the great things about collecting. My, the, one of the, my favorite cards in my collection is even more like ridiculous and, <laughs> it's the 1989 score, Jose Canseco. Um, it's card number one in the set, and that was the first complete set I ever bought was the 1989 score. So, You want to hear a, f a funny story? Is I, I hand-correlated that 89 score set, you know? And <laughs> you'll ne I, I think, Eric, I probably told you this, but Mike O, you'll never guess what the last card I needed in that set was. I probably won't guess unless it's Steve Jeltz, just like uh, <laughs> Buddy Caesar out there in California. <laughs> good, good guess, but no, it was Barry Bonds of all people. <laughs> that's a uh, that's pretty fascinating turn. <laughs> I know, like who knew, right? I don't know. I just I I'll never forget getting that card. I found it in like I went to my friend's house and I found it in his box of like you know five row count box of just cards i'm like oh i need that card for my 89 score set <laughs> so anyway yeah that was before i was actually collecting bonds well you've already so um... you're a, he was an a's fan at that time so yeah. well i mean i was i mean i would keep my bonds cards but it wasn't like he he was like my main collecting focus i guess at that time mm. anyways i thought i'd share that story at that point, Bonds was just some guy playing out in Pittsburgh. Exactly. <laughs> that was pretty good, uh, along with his uh, counterpart, Bonilla. Once upon a time, once upon a time, Bobby Bonilla. Yeah. 
Then he robbed the Mets, and he continues to rob the Mets year after year. I know. That's a fascinating contract. I always hear, like, what does he get, like, a million dollars a year for another, what, 10 years or whatever? I forget what exactly, but. It certainly worked out for him much better than it worked out for the New York Mets organization. But as a Phillies (laughs) fan, I can't complain about it. Yeah, totally. (laughs) All right, guys, I want to get into some card talk. We talked about the channel a little bit. Nate, you were talking a few moments ago, and you brought up nostalgia. So that's kind of what triggered this uh, this next little bit of conversation. I want to talk a little bit about the Jack the the junk wax era, and how there's a there's certainly a comeback in the junk wax era. We still refer to it as junk wax. But not all of it is specifically junk. There's actually a lot of value in there. Maybe tougher to come by than you would think. And just because you have a giant box of old Donruss and Topps baseball cards from the mid-80s, late-80s, doesn't mean you have gold. But there's certainly some value because graded cards from that era have certainly started to take off. Specifically, if you can grab the PSA 10s which is not as easy as one one might think, even though there's a ton of cards out there. There's a lot of centering issues, quarter issues, and if people didn't take care of them, that's a whole other issue. But I think the biggest thing for that kind of boost in attention to the Junkwex era cards is nostalgia. I think a lot of people are getting back into the hobby. I've certainly seen a boost in the hobby recently, and I can just see that just even from friends of mine who don't even they don't really follow the hobby but they they collected as kids and i see them showing interest again even if it's just buying a blaster box or two um to open with their kids and they don't really pay attention to the cards that much but i I see people getting back into it and i think nostalgia is one of the keys really in pop culture it's it's something that it sells big in a lot of things. And I think you're seeing that with baseball cards. Now, do you guys agree with that kind of mindset? Okay. So I think that nostalgia definitely is driving a lot of the eighties cards, but I think even more so than nostalgia is the PSA set registry. And it like, if certain cards are in a registry, I think it's like a one upsmanship as well as nostalgia. I think, I think both things are driving the eighties cards but the, the 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 it seems to be a lot, like a lot of competitive nature within people in the set registries, and I just say that because what, you know if you're listening listening or watching people on YouTube talk about their set registry, it's like real important that they're number one or two or three or four or five or they're in the top ten. And the only way to achieve a higher status within a registry is to have gem mint tens. And so there's going to be a huge demand for the Gem Mint 10s. And, of course, like you were saying, Mike, it's really hard to um, to get a 10. So that that's what drives the 10, I guess. But, yeah, absolutely, a lot of people that are, like, getting back into the hobby, there's a lot of nostalgia. Yeah. I mean, like those 80s sets, I mean, there, there's some classic sets. There's some great sets in the 80s. And, and so many Hall of Fame and great ball players and great rookie cards and just the nostalgia of all that, you know, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this hobby needs nostalgia. (laughs) That's, that's the whole point of it. You know, in a lot of cases. Yeah, I agree. I think it, I think the PSA set registry, PSA set registries 
um, have definitely put uh, specifically 80s junk wax rookies on the map. Um, again, for serious collectors. Um, but I think that has kind of created a trickle down effect, or trickle down effect, because a lot of guys like us who are our age, you know, who grew up collecting in the 80s and even early 90s, um, have now gotten back into the hobby. And that's where the nostalgia comes in. They were like, oh, hey, these cards that we used to collect are worth all this money. Well, I can't afford a PSA 10, um, you know. Mark McGuire, Topps Tiffany rookie card, uh, but I can afford a PSA 9, which then you start seeing those PSA 9s go up, and eventually you start seeing the PSA 8s, where like your PSA 7s are now can, like kind of your book value cards. Um, so I definitely think PSA set registries, um, putting them on the map, has brought back people that are now nostalgic about their days collecting and can now afford those cards that they couldn't afford when they were, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. I mean, there's there, a 10 year old couldn't have afforded an 84 Don Russ, Don Manningly rookie back in 1987, you know, no. <laughs> um, it, it wouldn't have happened, but now, um, as an adult, I can go out and buy a PSA nine for, you know, like 30 bucks or 40 bucks, whatever the number is. So um, I think that plays a huge part in it as well. Yeah, I think there's a lot of popular players from that era too that you see a fairly strong value, you know, even if they're not Hall of Famers and just some iconic cards. You talk about Mattingly, I think Bo Jackson's another one. I don't know if you guys follow the Bo Jackson market at all, but his autograph stuff, because oh, he's in a huge. lot of products now, dude. Pretty pricey. They go for more than a lot of the uh, more common Hall of Famers. Uh, some like the the Billy Ripken FF card, like that's taken off in recent years, and uh, so many others as well. And obviously, yes, the set registries I think have built a demand. They've certainly increased the price because you have people chasing down those high grade ones. But I I do think there's a level of people who are coming back to the hobby, they're getting involved in some of the new stuff and then they're going back to, Hey, when I was a kid and now the people who are getting back into that who are adults now, when they were a kid are the eighties and the early nineties to a degree. And I, I do think that's garnering a lot of interest in that stuff. Much like in 19, in the eighties, when people would get back into it, they would go back and, think about the 50s and 60s stuff not that the 80s and 90s stuff will ever be as rare as valuable as that stuff at least i wouldn't think i do think there's going to be a continued interest in those products people wanting to go back and find their favorite players or teams and uh, different items like that you know what i think is cool too is like when you talk about 80s cards like, you know, let's say someone quit collecting in 1991 and then they hop back into the hobby now. Well, now all of a sudden you can afford literally every single card that would have been impossible for you to buy in 1990 unless you had like endless, you know, budget to buy cards. Because obviously in 1990, a lot of those cards were, you know, relative to what money is now. They were, they were pretty expensive. I mean... You had like the 86 Donruss Jose Canseco was selling for like $125 all day long. And, 
And, you know, like cards like that, the 88, like we were talking about the 84 Don Mattingly. I mean, that was like a $75 card. And <laughs> so now those things are, you know, if you buy raw, nice examples, they're completely affordable. And you can get all the 80s cards now for relatively inexpensive um, getting back into the hobby. I you, think you that could, probably helped as well. You could probably buy complete sets of every major brand in the 80s. And with the exception of maybe like the Tiffany's or whatever, um, and spend less than like a thousand bucks. If if you were to buy every single set from 1981 to 1989, um, with the exception of the Tiffany's complete set, you could probably spend less than a thousand bucks. Yeah, you probably, probably could. If you probably even all- less than like eight hundred dollars. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool, you know, because back in the 80s or early 90s, that would have cost you an arm and a leg, and, you know, you probably have to mortgage your house to pick up all those cards. Oh, for sure. I mean, I mean the 89 Upper Deck set in 1990 or 89, 90, 91 was like a $250, $300 set. Yeah. Now, now you can buy it for 45 bucks, if not yep. less than that. Yep, yep. Factory. I mean, the nineteen eighty nine, basically any set from nineteen eighty nine that isn't upper deck, you can get a complete set for ten bucks or less. And then you can have your Griffey rookie and the rest of the set for free. Exactly. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Your Griffey rookie, your Randy Johnson rookie. Um, and then uh pretty much, yeah, every other card for free. <laughs> It's just fun to go back. It's hard. It baffles my mind how old 80s cards are now. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it the other day. Like when when I really started collecting like big time was 1983. And now in 2017, cards that were printed in 83 are older than like the first issue of Tops. I mean, I know they had an issue in 51, but the uh, in 52... Um, that was only what a 31 year old set, right? <laughs> in 1983, and now 1983 to now is what like 35 years old. So, man, I, I don't know. It fascinates me when I start thinking like that. Have either of you two noticed on eBay like like listings of like cards from the mid 80s, like up until maybe like 86, 87? People listing as vintage. I have not noticed. No. I have not <laughs> seeked that, that out, but it doesn't surprise <laughs> me because I always see people yeah. on like Facebook posting messages in some of the different groups, the various card groups, because there's thousands of them out there. Uh, yeah. Baseball Card Junkies TV is a great one, though, so people should search that out on Facebook. Uh, I see people saying, what do you consider vintage? What year is vintage? And everyone's – you have people who say, oh, it's anything 79 and earlier. Some people say 81 and earlier. Some people say the year they were born. I see people considering like 1989 tops vintage. And I'm like, I don't consider that vintage, but I can see why some people who were born in 1999 might. Yeah, I mean, uh, 89 can't be vintage because there's more 89 sealed in packs than there is, you know, 2018 top sealed in packs. So you, yeah. it can't be vintage if you could still get it brand new, like, you know, in, in factory, you know, like the way it was manufactured, right? So Well, I, I kind of consider anything like, like 1980 or earlier vintage, um, but I also, I also think at some point 
you're they're gonna have to start considering cards in the eighties vintage cards. Like they're gonna have to um like like how now we have the pre war vintage, right? It's its own kind of category. And then we have vintage, which is kinda you know what, nineteen forty five, forty six or wherever to nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty, there will be another category for, you know, nineteen eighty through nineteen eighty nine, ninety or whatever, I think at some point it's gonna happen. Yeah. I mean just because of age, that that that's why. Yeah. Because I I remember when I first started collecting or in, like around nineteen ninety, not when I first started, but when I first started like you know, like researching more about the hobby, vintage was anything like 1974 or earlier because, uh, or 73 or earlier, excuse me, because 73 was the last year that they issued the, um, packs in series, right? And then 1974 was the first year where they put it like card one through 660 in the same, you know, just in a single series. And then people started considering 1980 vintage and earlier because that was the last year where tops was exclusive to mlb and then in 81 you had like tops flair and donruss and that's why that's not vintage so who knows how you know collectors but really the collectors are kind of the ones that decide what is and isn't vintage so yeah i think there'll probably always be some sort of separation where you'll have like eric mentioned you have that pre-war vintage you have vintage then you're probably just going to have something that's known possibly as the junk wax era vintage. Who knows what they're going to call it, but I feel like you're going to always have those certain eras um, broken up to a degree because, you know, the hobby really changed at that point um, for that, for that decade or so where you had all those companies and obviously the popularity at the time, which called for the increase in production because I almost feel like the 90s is a whole another level, honestly, in its own from the 80s. You can separate that as an era because then you had the the insert era to kind of take over where everything became inserts. And, yeah. Know, and then eventually, obviously, that, that was a shorter span. But then next thing you know, you had the age of the hits where everything was relics and autographs and all that stuff. And it'll be interesting to see what the next – the next thing is in the evolution of baseball cards because it's it's hard to see change before it happens. But at some point, uh, I think the hobby will continue to evolve. And who knows? Maybe it takes a step back and gets away a little bit from the hits to a degree because I do see a trend in certain people collecting that are just kind of like they've almost had enough with the with the memorabilia, the autographs, the hits, all that stuff. And you see this trend pushing towards people being really interested in rookie cards again and base cards, yeah. stuff like that. Not that there's not a million people still into everything else, but it's kind of a lot well, to I absorb, think you, but it's interesting. You, sorry, Mike. You see you see that in the, the new update, like the tops update issues, these base cards, like the Jose Altuve rookie or the Giancarlo Stanton the Mike Trout fetching these astronomical values, like more than a autograph card of a hall of famer, like really. Um, and I think that's because I, you know, how you mentioned the nineties were the insert area. That's actually what I was going to say about the nineties are like the insert area. And I think the, the insert era. And I think what we're going to see is like, we're, we're actually the hobby right now is, um, 
kind of doing what they did in the 80s with the overproduction of all those cards that I think we're kind of reaching this stage of overproduction of autographs. Um, and I think that's why you've noticed that people are kind of moving away from the autographs and going more towards those um, rookie cards now. Yeah, and, and I think that the whole rookie card thing started because, you know, like our hobby is very, you know, the bandwagon effect drives our hobby. And it all started with that uh, Mike Trout rookie card from uh, 2011 Tops Update. And because that card soared in value, now you're seeing all the other update rookie cards, you know, gaining a lot of popularity. And those are all the cards that tend to be on the set registries as well for whatever set registry people are creating. It's always the Tops Update rookie is like the key rookie card to get. And that's why you see, like, the, you know, I mean, I, 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 I know that that Mike Trout card started it. And it, it just kind of bandwagoned and picked up from there. And then, uh, like, as far as my thoughts on, like, um, the 90s cards, I mean, to me, I think 90s are probably going to catch that vintage feel, <laughs> you know, sooner than maybe some of the cards from the 80s, just because there was just so many just wonderful sets that were produced in the nineties. And that's a lot of those cards are 20, 25 years old. Some of them almost 30 years old now. So yeah, time is, time has just flown by, man. And they're pretty uh, difficult the, to find too. I mean, some oh, of yeah. that stuff like, Oh yes. Well, I mean, some I, of I that think, stuff. I think even with this trend towards grading, I think even increases the value of some of those inserts, different things a little bit too, if they're high grade, just because, while people were were protecting their cards back then, they were using top loaders and stuff. There wasn't as much of a focus on that perfection for those PSA tens. And I oh, see that yeah. with like the Donruss Elite cards. Not that they're easy cards anyway, but like I always love some of those early '90s Donruss Elite cards. Just growing up, like that was like the golden ticket back then. Like '92 Donruss, mm-hmm. I love <laughs> that stuff. '91 Donruss, and like you look if you see like. PSA tens of those old elite cards before the mid nineties hits, like those can go for some crazy prices and you don't really see very many of them, even though I think the print run was like 10,000 or something. Yeah. But you yeah. know, you got to remember like those early Don Russ elite cards, you take that print run and you divide it probably by 10 and that's how many are actually out in circulation. Yeah. Cause it's because most and still in cases and pallets in a warehouse somewhere well, in the and, middle and, of the country. And then you got kids that pulled them and they got thrown out because no one understood what it was. It was just to look different than some of the other cards and a lot of them got ruined and So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you divide that print run by 10 and that's probably what's circulating in the hobby. So it's uh, the print run is very, very, very elusive, especially on those early Don Russ elite ones. Yeah, I pulled the I pulled the Ricky Ricky Henderson. I have a 91 Don Russ pack um, from like a little Barry's market. It's like a little corner market um, over by where I lived. And when I pulled out, I was like, this card looks different than everything. I don't know what it is. I was probably like, a, what, uh, 12 at the time. And I had, no, like, I had no idea what an insert was. I just knew that it looked different than the other cards. And um, it eventually got traded. Or um, I, I think I traded it to someone for 
like a bunch of like Jerry Rice and Joe Montana cards or something like that. But <laughs> I, I mean, in hindsight, like if I had kept it, it'd be, you know, a $200 card now or whatever. Um, it's just, it's just one of those things. I don't think in that day and age, um, baseball, the baseball hobby in general or any sports card hobby did a very good job of, um, marketing, um, you know, what was out there. Um, or or printing stated odds of a card on the back of a pack, you know. Well, the reason why they start they started printing stated odds on the back of a pack is uh, for legality reasons. There was a lawsuit, and yeah, they had to state the odds. It was uh, it was the introduction though of the of the inserts, which in retrospect was a good thing. It brought more attention. It brought more things for us collectors to chase. I mean, it probably cost us a lot more money in the long run because we had a lot more cards of our favorite players and teams. But just interesting to see how things developed. Like you had like those early insert cards, like the Diamond Kings and the Elite, and then it just kind of picked up steam and then boom, just exploded there in the 90s with the parallels and the inserts and all that crazy stuff that, you know, I think at some point, People were just like, man, there's so many inserts and you had people kind of dropping out of the hobby a little bit here and there. And of course, you had the baseball strike, which I don't think had a positive effect on the hobby or baseball in general. But we've really seen a uh, kind of a boost in 90s inserts, uh, an increase in popularity again. At least that's the way it seems to me. And Nate, I know we talked a little bit about it back uh Back in the beginning of this podcast, uh, about eight episodes ago or so, but I know you're really big into the '90s inserts, and you know we kind of talked about how that uh, how that's really kind of continued to grow and continues to grow in the hobby. Oh man, yeah, the '90s inserts. I mean, if you get like the right grade and the right card and the right player, some of those cards go for well over ten thousand dollars. It is, it's incredible. I mean, they're selling for, you know, vintagey type pricing, and that's why I say, the kind of the next era of vintage, I really think will be a lot of that '90s stuff, especially like between like the, I think the, um, the really golden age of the inserts, to me, in my opinion is from 97 through like 2000 because that, that's when just like just just some wonderful stuff was uh popping up in in the hobby and all the that's when you had like the most competition with the most companies and all the companies were trying to one-up each other there's just some incredible stuff out there of course stuff you know pre-97 96 95 I'd say maybe 94 and earlier, not so much, but 95, 96, and then 97 on, on up. There's just, just, yeah, a lot of great stuff out there. And so many great players as well. You know, like Griffey, Thomas, Bonds, Greg Maddox. I mean, just, just a host of great players. Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco. I mean, just, yeah, Juan Gonzalez. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. Um, I, I think the rarity on those is the, as a whole is though, because, um, Mike hit on the nail on the head is that a lot of people left collecting, like got disenfranchised because of the strike, um, and stopped collecting. So I think there's a lot of collectors out there that don't really know what's, uh, 
what these inserts like. There are inserts that I never even knew existed, right? Um, just looking at Nate's Bonds collection um, and having to go back and see, like, oh, is there a Mark McGuire of this card? Um, but I think uh, that's been spurred on the whole 90s insert craze right now has been spurred on by the the player collectors um, trying to get those cards of their favorite players. Um, also, the set collectors who, um, you know, happen to maybe remember or maybe had these sets started when they were kids and they're now getting back into it later on. For sure, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there was a lot of set collectors and player collectors battling over some of those tough-to-find 90s inserts. Because, like, with my Bonds collection, sometimes you see someone will win a card. And I got a, a couple of buddies that we talk with all the time. And they're like, ah, oh, that guy must be a set collector. I've never seen that eBay name. And, of course, we know eBay names not by the name but by the feedback rating, right? You, you know who the different collectors are just knowing what their feedback rating is because they don't put the whole name down anymore. <laughs> but anyway, we have some interesting conversations like, oh, that's got to be a set collector. I've never seen that guy. But, yeah, there are a lot, a lot of 90s set collectors out there for sure. And um, on my, I, I have a, a, 1990, a 1990 through 2004 uh, rare insert group um, on Facebook. And you see a lot, of, a lot of those set collectors on that group. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of awesome stuff in the 90s. I look back on some of those refractor sets, like when they introduced the atomic refractors just absolutely beautiful i know i've talked about it a few times like the 93 finest i love that set in general but those refractors are just stunning they're just amazing and then of course every company like you mentioned before they were all trying to one up each other and everyone's coming up with new stuff and foil cards and all kinds of crazy great stuff like there's just so much to collect and you know you've brought up how how valuable, how expensive some of it is, but there's also a lot that is very affordable. So it, you shouldn't be scared off if there's a certain player or team you collect. I mean, go on comc.com, go on eBay, check it out. Sometimes you can nab some of those cards, you know, pretty cheap and they're just awesome to add to your collection. Just look at them. Some of like the pinnacle museum collection parallels, just beautiful, beautiful cards that are just fine for any collection. Yeah, and then they got yeah, and and that, that well yeah, Pinnacle had like the the museum collection, but if you you don't want to pay for a museum collection, you could always uh, or well actually the artist proof would be a step up from the museum collection, but sometimes they had like the Starburst, so there are all kinds of different parallels where they use like the Dufex technology and you know all all the different types of technology with the Pinnacle brand, and but yeah, I mean some of the cards like like when you look at them. There's like five or six different technologies they're using on the front of the card, on, on mm -hmm. one card. And it's just fascinating, man. It's like, how did they come up with this stuff? <laughs> yeah, and what's interesting is because you mentioned the refractors. is like those are gorgeous cards, cards, but like don't even put a dent in some of the other, like, like Nate said, kind of when you get later into the 90s, 96, 97 through kind of, 2004 that don't even put a dent in the values of some of these other offerings oh my uh, yeah it's crazy yeah yeah and it's, it's funny because before i started um 
you know, getting uh, involved in the community, like card collecting community, when I was just collecting on my own, I always thought like if you got a refractor of a certain player, that was like the cream of the crop for that year or that player. And boy, have I learned a lot since then, because that's just like where the real nice cards start would be the refractor parallel. Now, like some of the other brands were just offering so much tougher to find cards than the, than the tops brands were offering mm-hmm. from the nineties. Nate, you brought up uh, some of the great players from the nineties. You mentioned a few names and I think a lot of people are getting back into those players and kind of reintroducing themselves to collecting those players. So it's kind of interesting to see how that, how that evolves, how time changes people's perspective of different players and, um, people kind of go back and some of it's just people being nostalgic again about, Hey man, I remember Frank Thomas and Ken Griffey were the biggest stars then, or remember I love this player or that player. Everyone's got different popularities. And I feel like guys jump on the scene. You have rookies that are obviously super hot and popular and everyone's into, and then eventually they level off. And then you get guys who are all-time greats, like, for example, uh, Albert Pujols, all-time great. But it seems like the interest in his stuff hobby-wise is is not great. Obviously, his rookie stuff is expensive and autographs. Like, I'm not saying his stuff doesn't have value, but you look at, like, modern stuff. It, not that – it just seems like he doesn't get the attention that you would think he would. And it's be interesting to see what happens, you know, when he retires in the next few years and – we go five or 10 years down the road. Once people start talking about the hall of fame, stuff like that. Uh, do you th- think some of these guys in the nineties have kind of gotten a boost over time again, especially with the rare stuff? And, you know, Eric, you can chime in as well. Cause I think McGuire is one of those guys who ca- people kind of forgot about there for a few years. And I feel like his popularity is kind of picked up again a little bit as well. I mean, for sure. All the guys in the nineties are, You know, I mean, you're seeing a lot more interest in players like you had mentioned earlier, like Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson cards weren't popular at all, you know, in in the year 2000. I remember I picked up two Bo Jackson Tiffany cards in a lot on eBay, 86 tops traded for like two bucks because he wasn't very popular. And then you, you, um, so players like him are going to regain popularity. I remember Jose Canseco, like in 1998. People were laughing at me because I, I was at a card show and I bought like a 86 Donruss Jose Canseco. And, uh, you know, he, he was real, um, very unpopular at that particular time. So players, obviously, yeah, a lot of those players are going to gain a lot of popularity as time goes on. And nostalgia, of course. And I think Pulholz right now, he's not very popular, not because he's not a great ball player. But because everybody wants to go after Mookie Betts and Mike Trout and, um, oh, uh, that guy in Milwaukee. Why can't I think of his name right now? You guys refresh my memory. Um, Christian Christian Yelich. I mean, that's where – and, and like, Eric and I were having a conversation about this a while ago. And I kind of have a theory. And, well, I I think it's a fact, but we can call it a theory. But there's only so many dollars – that are in the hobby, right? So you put everybody that collects, you put all the money into a pot. And so all that, there's only so much money that can be distributed throughout what's available in the marketplace, right? And so for whatever reason, 
like someone like Albert Pujols is kind of flying under the radar, at least with his modern stuff, because everybody that's collecting cards that are being produced now want the young, hot rookies. And then people that don't collect the young, hot rookies are collecting players from the 90s or the 80s. You know, so that's where where the hobby money is going as far as. um, And and so Pujols will get his day. His stuff will definitely increase quite a bit. And, you know, probably I would say about three years after retirement, once people start saying, oh, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame in a couple of years, then all this yeah. stuff will gain popularity. So well, I, I, I think people I think people know that Albert Pools is a Hall of Famer. I don't think there's any doubt there. I think his card values were hurt by a how he left St. Louis and B that he never lived up the potential um that should have been when he moved to Los Angeles. Um, I mean, he had one good year and then he's just been injury plagued um, ever since then when he got to the angels. And I think that's hurting him. You know, anytime a player starts signs a contract like that and then they don't live up to it, it does damage to your hobby reputation. Um, But definitely has a homers and RBIs. He just doesn't have the batting average. He's, He's batting over 300. Well, yeah. I mean, it did take, take you out last year, this last season. Yeah, he definitely has the homers and the RBIs. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, he's realistically, he's on his way out. They, they only played him, like, half the season. Um, like, he spent half the season on the bench. Um, and he's going back for surgery again this offseason. So, um I would be surprised. I, I mean, he may finish out his contract just to finish out his contract, um, but uh, I would be surprised if he if he does and he doesn't just take some kind of a offer that the Angels make him to get out of that thing, um, just because he's there's there's he's not contributing a lot to the team at this point after this season. Well, I mean, that team certainly needs to figure something out. Unfortunately for them, they haven't had the level of success they'd like to have with a guy like Mike Trout. And obviously they had the hot sensation Shohei Otani, who, you know, despite his injury issues, I mean, he had a pretty good year at the plate as a part-time designated hitter. So they have some talent there. They just haven't lived up to things. I think that's probably hasn't helped Pujols. And you guys are on the West Coast, but I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of hobby on the East coast. I know Philadelphia, New York, Boston, that whole Northeast region. There's, there's a lot of collectors out there. And I I do think guys who play on the West coast, uh, on teams like the angels who don't, even though they get attention due to those popular players, they don't get the national TV television time that a team like the Dodgers does. I, I do think that has a negative effect, um, on one's, hobby popularity to a degree as well in the twilight of career while he's you know not performing not living up to what he once was i mean he's kind of the tale of two careers so that was just kind of an example i used there but nate you mentioned you know everyone chasing all those rookies or the hot players like mookie betts and now christian yelich among others and i do think part of that is you brought up the mike trout effect before that that Mike Trout tops update card that, you know, kind of blew up to a couple hundred bucks. And then from there it kind of blew up into, you know, five, $600, you know, for the high grade cards. 
Um, now you have people who have that fear of missing out on the next card that's going to blow up and everyone's kind of chasing these specific players as they, you know, start to succeed early in their career. Yeah. It's a, like, it's definitely the bandwagon effect. It's fascinating. And it was like that in the eighties cause I collected quite a bit in the eighties. And I mean, like a great example was <laughs> people talk about this guy all the time, but he was like the, the first player that had a lot of popularity and never played in Major League Baseball, and that was Greg Jeffries. And I mean, I remember back in 88, I wanted a Greg Jeffries card. I didn't know anything about Greg Jeffries except that he was the card to have. That's all I knew. <laughs> so, I mean, I've, I've, I've been there along with everyone else. Well, yeah, the bandwagon effect is certainly something to keep in mind. I, I think that's the case with uh, Shohei Otani, who I actually like. I actually get annoyed when I hear people complain about him too much because just watching the guy, he is incredibly talented. That being said, I'm not saying that his autograph should be going for $50,000. That's outrageous. <laughs> but I do think he is still extremely young and insanely talented. I, I think he could be great for the hobby if his career succeeds. Um, but you're always going to have a little – if he succeeds, you're going to have a little extra value uh, for him due to the international market. That's one of the reasons Ichiro stuff is Ichiro stuff can be pretty pricey, specifically with autographs and high grade rookie cards and stuff. Not only is Ichiro a fantastic player, but he kind of broke through in the majors and was a really successful hitter, and you know has obviously the huge following over in Japan as well. Yeah, Ichiro, he's a, he's definitely an interesting. Um, interesting hobby interesting for the hobby for sure because anytime you get yeah players from japan there's always a boost in popularity i remember the first one was hideo nomo i mean his uh, that was like in the 90s but he had a lot of hobby popularity because he was from japan as well yeah and his uh was the heard the tornado delivery or whatever it was Oh, yeah, um, and that was in 2007. Uh, Daisuke Matsusaka, I think, was his yeah. name. Bringing up Hideo Nova uh, real quick, Nate. Only only piecing this in there real quick because you brought up Greg Jeffries. Did you know back in Hideo Nomo's rookie year when he was that hot sensation, he, had, he hadn't gotten hit barely at all. Sunday night baseball, they were playing the Phillies, Dodgers-Phillies, and uh, Greg Jeffries actually hit for the cycle in that game. And Jeff Juden, who was a pitcher, hit a grand slam in that game, and the Phillies crushed the Dodgers like eighteen to four or something crazy. It was like complete, like the most unexpected Sunday night baseball game ever. And then the Phillies, <laughs> of course, went on to lose ninety eight games. Greg Jeffries, you know, continued to not be a great baseball player, and Hideo Nomo had a solid season before falling apart in the next year or two. Yeah, <laughs> just a little quick side story. I love the side story. Uh, yeah, you got all those memories of the Philadelphia uh, back in the 90s. I do. A lot of fun memories and a lot of memories of them losing games as well. So it just <laughs> comes with the territory of a team that's lost 10,000 games during the franchise's history. Uh, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about favorite teams real quick. Eric, you're an A's fan. Of course, you're going to yep. collect some A's. You, uh, you got some of those 80s A's like... Big Mac, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, and then, of course, some modern A's. I mean, the A's, I know they've been a bit of a disappointment in the postseason. 
over the last 10, 15 years. But for a team with the payroll they've had, they've obviously been quite successful and kind of had some unexpected years. So let's chat a little bit yeah. about the A's and some of your uh, A's collection. Okay. I don't know. Is there anything in particular? Sorry, is there anything? Is there anything in particular you would like to know? Um, I mean, as far as, as far as like A's, I mean, primarily my collection centers are around the '80s teams. Um, so, like your big guys on the teams, like Ricky Henderson, obviously Mark McGuire is my main guy. Um, Jose Canseco. Um, and then as far as pitching, you know, Dennis Eckersley, um, Dave Stewart, Bob Welch. Um, which interestingly enough, I think it was, uh, Dave Stewart when has what three 20 win seasons in a row from like, uh, what 88, 89, 90. And he did not win one Cy Young award in any of those years. Um, and then Dennis Eckersley wins the Cy Young award in like 1993, I think. Did, uh, Bob Welch had to win a Cy Young, right? Didn't he win 27 he- games? Yeah, he was the first one to do that for quite a long time. Um, and I think the last one since. Um, but yeah, he won like 27 games, 28 games. Um, had like a 3.95 ERA or some, something like that. But you have uh, three guys on the team or four guys on the team with 30-plus home runs. I mean, it's kind of hard to lose games, right? Um and then uh, I kind of fell off collecting kind of in the mid-90s, kind of through high school. Uh, and then picked it up again in 1998 um, with Mark McGuire. Um, well, actually probably in 1997 uh, with Mark McGuire hitting, uh, what was it, like 38 home runs for the A's that year or 37 home runs and then hitting another uh, 20 with the Cardinals, and then in 1998, him breaking the the record uh, with Sammy Sosa, and watched my childhood dream of owning the 1985 Topps rookie card just go into the dumps because I couldn't afford it anymore. Because <laughs> that was at that point raw, like a 400, 500 dollar card, uh, which was kind of interesting. Um, but nowadays, uh, I actually have a hard time collecting ace players just because they don't seem to stay on the team very long. Um, so like I, when I started collecting, I was like, okay, Josh, um, Josh Allison has been on the A's for a couple of years now. He's starting to show, you know, the fruits of his labors. Uh, so I started collecting his cards. As same with Jonas Cespedes. Then that off that that uh, All Star break, they were traded, and then Josh Donaldson won the MVP the next year. So uh, that year, I the A's almost lost me. I almost switched to the Giants, or at the very least, you know, um, some other West Coast team like the Rockies or something. I don't know, but. Um, when they got rid of their whole team, I was like, what the heck are you doing? You have the best record in the, in the majors at that point. Um, and then they just dismantled the team saying, Oh, we were going to make a run. So they picked up, um, Jeff Smarzla, uh, and, uh, what's his name? John Lester, who didn't do anything 
neither of them did anything for the A's and now we've been rebuilding and we finally made it to the playoffs so I'm expecting them to break up the team in the off season. Let's hope not, but I guess you never know what's gonna happen. But yeah, yeah I, mean, I do have a I do have a pretty uh, uh, ever expanding Chris Davis PC going on right now and uh I've started to collect some uh of the other younger guys as well. Um Matt Olson and Matt Chapman. Uh but that's about it. I I'm I really I hesitate to collect A's players just because uh, they rarely stay on the team for very long. Chris Davis stuff, for as good as he's been over the last few years, I mean, I know he's not that five-tool guy. He's not that high-average guy. But, I mean, no one's really hit home runs at the consistent rate he has over the last several seasons. And you could still get his autos and hits and all that stuff pretty pretty cheap. I see him, you know, if you look hard, you can probably find him for like five bucks on eBay, specifically now that the baseball season's over. So not a not a bad guy to collect if you're looking to uh, just add some cool stuff to the collection at a cheaper rate. Yeah, his lower numbered stuff is, is getting kind of pricey. Um, some of his like, uh, you know, going a little bit deeper into the, the, the parallels um are are can get a little pricey but for the most part he is fairly affordable um and uh you know even getting into like things like numbered down to 5 you're still spending you're spending like 60 bucks for uh you know a pretty sick patch and an autograph to come with it so it's once you once you start getting into like the one of ones and stuff like that. It, even the number to five, it starts getting a little bit pricey, but anything 10 or higher, uh, it's all fairly affordable. Um, I think I picked up like a number to 25 autograph for like 12 bucks or something like that, which, you know, if it was Mike Trout or even like Stanton or anyone like that, you, you know, would be paying a lot more than 12 bucks to say the least. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. So Nate, I think anyone who's ever followed anything you've done either on Facebook or YouTube, uh, probably hard pressed to not know you're a Barry Bonds fan and also a San Francisco Giants fan. So obviously you have an extensive Bonds collection, but you pick up other Giants players from time to time, correct? Oh yeah. I, I like picking up, uh, players from like the eighties and nineties. And of course I collect a lot of Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, got a nice Juan Marichal collection, Orlando Cepeda. <clears throat> so like, like the guys from the fifties and sixties on up through the eighties, like Will Clark, like to collect him. Kevin Mitchell's one of my favorites to collect. You want to talk about a great ball player that you can pick cards up for cheap, man. Hey, Kevin anyone Mitchell. who can collect, anyone who can catch a fly ball with their bare hand. I mean, I feel like you got to collect them, right? You know what? It's funny because people are always talking to me, or you know, whenever I mention Kevin Mitchell in a video, they always say the bare hand catch, the bare hand catch. But uh, I was actually in my buddy's garage um, building a skateboard when Mitchell caught that ball. <laughs> Anyways, a little side story there. And then, like, today's players, you know, I like collecting Brandon Crawford, Madison Bumgarner, Buster Posey, you know, all those guys, Hunter Pence. Um, and 
And then it's kind of ironic, like through the YouTube community, like uh, people love sending me their Giants cards. I, I think I have like the biggest Matt Cain collection out there. <laughs> Without even making never, an attempt. <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, I have like the biggest Matt Cain collection out there for someone that's never actually. I mean, I may have bought a couple of Matt Cain cards in, in my collecting career, but not that many because uh, <laughs> people have sent me like most of the ones that I have. I, I got a couple of hundred of him. But I like I uh, Tim Lincecum. That's another one. Boy, he was he was fun to collect when he was playing. So yeah, there's all kinds of Giants players out there that I that I love to collect. It's a lot of fun because when you can kind of when you can collect the cards and enjoy the cards and connect it to memories of watching the players, I think it just makes that all the more special. I think it's it's just a lot of fun to. Uh, there's such a diversity of things to collect and you know we've talked about it for quite a while now we're actually over an hour so i feel like we could go for about four to six more hours but i I don't think we're gonna be able to do that all tonight but at some point might have to certainly consider doing this again i do want to get through a few few kind of uh quick things if you guys are up for it sure sure so I'm just going to ask you guys both, just get some quick thoughts. We'll call this like, I don't know. I don't know what we'll call it because it's off the cuff, but just quick thoughts, quick thoughts. Yeah. Uh, favorite sets. You guys have any uh, favorite vintage? Do you have a favorite vintage set and do you have a favorite modern set? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you four sets. I'll give you a vintage set. Will obviously be the 1959 set. And uh, you have to go and watch my channel if you want to know why on that one. And then as far as like, um, you know, junk wax era would be the 1983 top set. And then as far as like 90s inserts, there's all kinds of sets I like from there. I mean, that, that one would be the hardest um, to, to give a set. But I would say like the um, 1993 finest would have the, the refractor parallel set from then. And then... Um, like kind of like a modern set, anything from I'd say 2000 on up as far as like a base set. My favorite set would probably be the 2008 set for for whatever reason. I think that's because that's a year I collected with my son, and it's, I just really enjoy collecting that hand collecting that set with my son. There's a lot of stuff in there, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think uh, I was never really. You know, I missed the vintage. I was born in 1979, so I don't have any memories of like vintage sets. Um, but for me, uh, like I can't remember what's the, you know, Nate, what's the, uh, is it 1974, 75, which is the kind of the colored borders, like the, yeah, it's 75, 75. So I do like the 1975 tops. Um, I do 1980s tops is kind of one of my favorite early eighties. Uh, but then like you get into my favorite sets, like, you know, from when I was collecting as a kid would have been like, um, you know, 87 tops, 88 Don Russ, 88 tops, uh, 89 Don Russ, you know, kind of getting into that type type of thing. Um, and then it, I probably don't have a favorite set again until like 1993 finest. Um, that's my favorite overall would be my favorite set of everything. Cause it kind of just like changed the whole, um, changed the game for the hobby really. 
um, because it was the first like chrome looking set and uh, really gave collectors something to to go after. I think. I love 1953 tops. I just think it's classic set, and that's why I love one of the reasons I love the tops living set they're doing. Beautiful. For some weird reason, I love 1957 tops. I think I just like that really basic look. And uh, it's just, there's so many awesome vintage sets, you know, going back looking at like 1960 tops. It's a year I kind of skipped uh, over. And then just one day I was just looking at cards. I was like, damn, these cards are freaking awesome. And then uh, when you get into the newer stuff, 89 tops, I mean, I've talked about it numerous times, just one of the first sets I got involved in that got me into the hobby. So just a classic set to me. I echo both your thoughts on 1993 Finest. Absolutely love that set. Love the refractors. Just beautiful, beautiful product. Certainly a game changer for the hobby. Underrated set that not a lot of people talk about, but 1993 Upper Deck. Those cards are beautiful. Great photos. Bright photography. For those who collect autographs, who do like the TTM stuff or get cards signed, if you're looking to get a card signed, Check out your favorite player or team, 90, 1993 Upper Deck card. They look gorgeous, signed in blue. And I love a lot of the modern stuff. It's hard to pick just one, but Top's Definitive, beautiful set. Not worth opening because it's like $1,000 a box, but if you have a favorite player or a favorite team, you can get singles cheap. Top's Definitive, outstanding looking set. So guys, I want to get... a. Uh, kind of quick thoughts again grading what any any thoughts on grading doesn't have to be expansive but is it do you think it's taken over the hobby legitimately or do you not really buy into it any uh any thoughts on grading oh, i think it's definitely taken over it's it's uh, legitimately um here to stay in the hobby um i mean you can you could literally be a player collector and collect all graded cards of that player. Um, you could be a set collector, collect all graded cards of that set. Uh, you have the PSA set registries. Uh, I mean, you have all these grading companies that are making like these huge changes to be more competitive with the other grading companies in the hobby. And I, I think for sure graded cards are here to stay. And um, I, I kind of, uh, part part of me feels a little bit like uh, it's it's I kind of like being able to hold a card. Um, so for grading, um, with with the few exceptions, it's not really a huge aspect of my collection. Um, though I do find myself, you know, buying like some PSA ten cards of of certain players. Um, you know, cards that I like growing up or whatnot. Um, but, uh, for me, I, I'm kind of a little bit more old school. I like to be able to hold the card and, um, in my hand versus it being locked in a, in a slab for the rest of its days. So my thoughts on grading is I think it's really good for the hobby because it brings in a different kind of collector or it'll introduce the hobby to a different kind of collector. And it's an option that all of us, all of us collectors have is to have a card slab. It's not a requirement for us to slab our cards. I mean, me, I'm a bonds collector and I've only seeked out 
graded bonds cards twice. One is a 1993 Finest Refractor. I wanted to make sure that was in a graded slab. And then the 1986 Topps Traded Tiffany. And then, I mean, of course, I buy, you know, I have all, all bonds. You know, typically when you're a player collector, you want to have all the rookie cards graded. So I do have all those rookie cards graded. But, and then I think that grading is good for vintage as well. Um, I always say buy the card, not the grade, but I think that it's important to know, kind of have an, a good idea on what the condition of the card is when you're buying a vintage card and to also make sure that it hasn't been altered, you know, whether it be trimming or, you know, maybe altering the coloring on the card. Or anything like that. I think it's important that that it's in legitimate condition just for altercations. And so, yeah, I mean, I think grading is wonderful for the hobby. I'm not a huge grade. I've never sent a card in for grading. I have no intention of ever doing that. But I think that it does. It's it's fun for people that like to send cards in and see, you know, how they can do with that and see if they can turn a profit or add a card into their collection that's a high high grade that they might have bought raw i could see the appeal in that but yeah grading's awesome i think it's great for the hobby and i think it just gives another niche and and brings more collectors into the hobby that like that kind of thing or or it's good for collectors like me where in certain instances i do like to have graded cards or or i do want to understand or have better knowledge of what i'm buying and and that can be done through through graded cards, especially with vintage. I uh, echo your guys' thoughts. I think as someone who does get cards graded and gets a lot of cards graded, probably more cards than I should, <laughs> there's definitely a thrill. And there's there's a skill and there's kind of I, – I can't explain it, but when you're sitting there evaluating the cards, kind of deciding which ones to send in and then when you choose the right batch and they come back in a grade that you're happy with, uh, I think there's something really fun about that. And I think there's obviously a lot of people who agree with that. Um, but it's also awesome to just be able to go out there and purchase cards and especially with vintage. Uh, I think that was you know a key point to know that the card's authentic, that it hasn't been played with. Because recoloring is certainly an issue, and trimming, and all of all of those things that go down, and some of them weren't even necessarily intentional. Some of it happened way back, and people would just mess with the cards a little bit. But I think that's certainly great. I, I do think there are some keys, like you mentioned, buying the card, not the grade. You you definitely have to buy a card that you like. You know, you you shouldn't become you know just too obsessed with just the grades alone, but grading is certainly, uh, certainly become a bigger aspect to the hobby than I think anyone really saw coming. And, you know, we have like the three big companies and some smaller companies and it's just going to continue to evolve like everything else in the hobby. How about break and wax? Get some thoughts on break and wax. I know neither of you guys are big box breakers or anything, but I know one of you for sure definitely says without the uh, box breakers, you wouldn't have those singles to buy. Yeah, I mean, I could go first on that. I mean, I think that um, breaking wax, there's there's two types of wax breakers. There's one, you know, someone that casually will buy a box from time to time and, you know, have, have a fun time breaking open product. And then there's like the... Um, 
<laughs> there are people I think that actually have an addiction to breaking wax and they probably spend more money than they should or, or can afford. And, but you know what? We need those people in the hobby because like you said, Mike, it, uh, puts those cards into circulation. So us player collectors and people that enjoy those cards can, you know, afford to buy them, you know, it makes them affordable. And, but, um, one thing I noticed like a huge trend in the hobby is, um, let's say that group breaks. I think group breaks are a good idea. You know, if you're, if you're a team player or, or player collector, different ways to, you know, about going into group breaks. And I've even seen vintage group breaks now where, you know, someone might open up like a 1960, uh, tops pack and that, that's maybe a way to, you know, try to find a crispy vintage card of, you know, a hall of fame or something like that. But I mean, for me, I'm a, I rarely, rarely, rarely ever open up wax. And that's just because I'm so focused on my collection. I, I just can't afford to risk, you know, a hundred dollars, you know, between let's say 50 and $300 to open up a box of cards and then not get anything that can go into my collection. I just can't afford to do that. So I personally, um, just go with buying singles, but, uh, but I do appreciate the people that open up all that wax and put those cards in circulation. Someone has to keep COMC in business, but, uh, I, everything Nate said, I a hundred percent agree with, um, Nate and I are, um, we may differ on some things, but as far as, uh, busting packs or, you know, boxes or whatnot, um, I think we're pretty much of the same opinion on on that subject <laughs> i think there's a big uptick in retail sales sales of cards and i think that's actually another thing that's helped it's helped promote the hobby in a way um obviously walmart and target being the two most known retailers that carry stuff and there's actually exclusives there so i think the blaster boxes is actually just a great thing for the hobby $20 that a parent can spend, can give to their kid or pick up for their kid on their way home. Maybe the, you know, they did great in their report card or perhaps a birthday present, something like that. But I do think the retail wax is a good thing for the hobby. Obviously, some of the hobby wax can be kind of ridiculous, but when you go back and you talk to people and be like, hey, how'd you get involved in this hobby? 95% of the time, if not higher, you're going to hear people back, oh, well, I used to like opening packs of baseball cards as a kid. So I think breaking wax and being responsible with it is key to kind of growing this hobby and passing the hobby along to America's youth, uh, I think, um, or the world's youth, I should say. I think people like opening stuff. There's that gamble aspect. There's the hope of getting something big. Obviously, not everyone can afford to break a whole bunch of stuff, but I do think it's i think it's a positive for the hobby. It's obviously important for the hobby. Like you guys said, you're not going to have singles available if, if no one breaks the stuff. Group breaks, definitely a great thing to look into. If you're new into it, though, you do want to do your research. You want to make sure you're dealing with people who are reputable. 
and you want to kind of read the details because there are some trends in group breaking where they break stuff and they only want to ship the hits and stuff like that. But a lot of guys do it and a lot of guys do a great job with it. So there are ways to get into some higher end products at a more affordable price and give yourself a chance to get something amazing. I mean, I don't do a ton of group breaks. I've done some in the past and I've hit some, I've had some good luck with, uh, some of that stuff in the past. I mean, anything from Sandy Koufax, like 1961 autograph card out of archive signature series to other, uh, monster hits that, you know, generally I would not have had a chance for. So breaking's definitely fun, but something you got to be smart about and trying to avoid that, uh, wax busting addiction that is so prevalent in the hobby. Yeah, I actually, I like what you said a lot about, you know, the $20 blaster box. I wasn't even thinking about retail when you were asking about breaking wax, but, uh, it, you know, it's fun to throw, throw a 20 down and, and bust open a black blaster from time to time and, you know, get that thrill of maybe pulling a, pulling a really cool card. No doubt about it. All right. Another quick one, uh, binders. I know both you guys do binders, but I want, Eric, you can start. Why should people collect cards in a binder? You know, I'm not saying you have to put every card you own in a binder, but what's a good reason for people to make sure they make up some sort of binder for their collection? Storage for one, you could fit a lot more, you know, cards into a binder in a tighter space than you will be able to put into like a three row or a five row or whatever. Um, it's, it's fun to, um, organize and arrange um and they're just fun to look at i mean as far as values of the cards i mean you know if, if that's something that's important to you you probably don't want to be putting your you know your bo jackson tops archive autograph in there or anything like that but um there i think binders are just fun and and again it throws back to you know when you were a kid you know most of us organize our cards in binders. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember having like, you know, for a, for a one page was like all the same card. Like you, you, you filled out the page with one, one, one specific card of that player or whatnot. So you could, you know, but I, to me, to me, it's just fun to have a binder. It reminds me of collecting, um, when I was, you know, like 11, 12, 13. Yeah. And like for me with binders, I think the, my favorite part of it is just being able to thumb through your collection you know, and and just see, you know, like like Eric was saying, arrange the pages and put your favorite players or favorite teams together, or you know, maybe a theme like a 500 home run club binder or a 3,000 hit club binder, and be able to see all the players and the different products next to each other, the different brands, the different years, and the shiny cards and the vintage cards, just kind of mixing it all together like a melting pot of awesomeness. You know, that's what a binder is. But I, like for me, like people are always like asking me, well, like, well, what's what 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 card should I put in a binder? And my the the tip I give, and Eric kind of alluded a little, maybe a card twenty dollar value or less, right? And I'm talking about like maybe like book value or what they sell on eBay. You don't want to put like super duper expensive cards in a binder because then you're risking them, you know, getting a little bit damaged. Whereas, you know, cards that are easier to replace if you do damage them. I, I've never had a problem with damaged cards in a binder, but I, of course, I don't send stuff into PSA. 
but man, they're, they're just fun to look through. That's, that's the biggest thing for me is it just, it just makes the hobby enjoyable because you can look through your cards and arrange them how you want. Probably don't want to put your, uh, golden boss refractor in there, <laughs> you know, so, um, no. you want to maintain condition on, on, uh, some kind of condition control on your higher end cards. But like Nate said, like anything around 15, 20 bucks or less book value or eBay value, whatever you choose, um, it's kind of a good, you know, threshold that's easily replace replaceable if, you know, something should happen and it gets damaged. There's no doubt that binders are awesome. It's definitely a great way to collect. You can collect any way you'd like, but I certainly suggest making up some binders. I kind of just do whatever. I have Phillies binders. I have some New England Patriots binders. I have just random old cards from like when I was a kid binders. I have my Phillies team set binder 51 through the current release. That one I made sure I put every card in there, even the 52 high number short prints that cost much more than $20, but I had to make sure I got for the set. But hey, you build a, build a binder however you want, but I know you guys both said it's just a lot of fun to go through and it's one of those things that every now and then you just pull it out and you flip through it. It's definitely an easy way to share with someone else too if you want to kind of show uh, a friend or a fellow collector, hey, you want to check out the binder and just flip through and enjoy it. They make for a great YouTube video too. <laughs> No doubt about it. All right, guys. Final quick thoughts is just your final thoughts for the show because we're approaching one hour and 30 minutes. So this is a massive episode of Hobby Talk with Mike O. You guys can uh, just give any final thoughts about the hobby or whatever's on your mind at the moment. All right. Well, I'll go first. Uh, my final thoughts is uh, uh, love what you collect and collect what you love and just make sure that you're having a good time with the hobby. Don't worry about what other people like. Just worry about what you like, and um, that's just the best way to collect, you know. And um, and there and there's no such thing as a bad collection. They're all good collections. There's only bad collectors, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean that, that that like that's not people that are you know collecting the wrong thing or anything. It's just like people there 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 is a contingent of people out there that like to judge other people's collections, which obviously is kind of like the exact opposite of what baseball card junkies is about, you know? Um, but, uh, like Nate said, you know, collect what you want to collect and, you know, what fits into your budget and know that there's people out there that, you know, you know, value you as a collector, even though you're not buying the PSA 10 Mickey Mantle rookie card. Right. So just, Collect what makes you happy, and you will be a happy collector. Well said, guys. It's uh, it's a great hobby. It's a lot of fun. There's so many different things to be involved in in the hobby. It's something kind of mentioned time and time again, but it doesn't matter if you're into the pre-war stuff or the vintage stuff or the 80s stuff for nostalgic purposes, or if you're following these hot young players. I mean, believe me, the talent level in baseball right now is off the charts. So I don't think there's anything wrong with collecting the guys who are tearing up baseball now. If you like opening wax, if you like buying singles grading, if you like 
collecting raw cards, binders. Maybe you like the old school screw downs. Maybe you like the new magnetics. There's plenty to choose from in the hobby. So enjoy the hobby. It's a ton of fun. Thank you guys for listening. If you're listening on SoundCloud or iTunes or the YouTube channel, hit the like button. If you enjoyed it, post a comment, send a message, whatever. If you enjoy the show, please share the show. Would certainly appreciate that. Of course, also check out Baseball Card Junkies TV. All you have to do is go to YouTube.com. Just search Baseball Card Junkies TV. Believe me, it will come up. Come up pretty quickly. You can also check out Eric's channel, Titanic Taters, and Nate's channel as well, Tops 85401, two entertaining channels where you'll learn a lot. That's one of the great things about the YouTube community. There's so much to learn. I don't care if you've been collecting for 20 minutes or 20 years or maybe 50 years. You will learn something new if you go check out videos from the YouTube community. So, Eric, Nate, I appreciate you guys joining me today. Thank you for having us, Mike. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was great fun. Thanks for having us on the show. No problem. I appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Have a great one. Mm-hmm.